Hello, we're here with Peter Lindbergh. He is the host of The Stoa and real observer, perhaps leader in this space of weird online meta intellectuals. Kind of hard to pin down exactly what Peter is. Perhaps we'll get to the bottom of that in this interview or not. I think for orientation there, he is shaking his head. It's not going to happen. I think how I'd like to start this conversation off, Peter, actually, is with a slightly impossible question. Although, like, I think the way you respond to the impossibility will be interesting in itself. And that's just like, where did this start? Because presumably at one point you were Peter Lindbergh, the guy, and then all of a sudden you became Peter Lindbergh, the observer of the Metatribes or the observer of the Mimetic Tribes. And where did this jump off point happen? Specifically, the culture war, kind of grokking the culture war. Hmm. Yeah, I could start in multiple directions there. Um, so I did a lot of in-person meetups before I became like an internet person. Uh, I ran a stoic, stoicism group. Uh, and then another one was more like intellectual jazzy. Um, it was like a performative agnostic group because I had this, like this, this thirst to talk about ideas and those sessions in particular, the, the non-stoic group, uh, a lot of the conversations felt real like schizophrenic, uh, cause all these people were coming cause the, the, the frame was so broad. It attracted like men's right activists, attracted feminists, new atheists, and no one was talking to each other. They're just like waiting for their turn to just to barf out their propositions. And I'm pretty good. Uh, I was trained as a facilitator, so I'm pretty good at holding space for other people. Uh, and then just like not collapsing to any one narrative uh, and just listening to all these people come. It just felt real disorienting. Um, but it was great, like on the ground anthropological work. Because for whatever reason, something's in the, in the water with Toronto. A lot of, lot of happenings here. And adjacent to that, um, when I was uh, at the University of Toronto, Jordan Peterson was my therapist uh, before he became, you know, Jordan Peterson. Uh, my last session with him was actually when he released those pronoun videos. So just seeing him like take off. And that was not the reason why it was my last session. It just worked out that way. And just seeing him take off from just like my therapist. And he had like indie kind of like intellectual cred in Toronto, but that was about it to becoming like a sensation in the culture war. That was sort of informative. So those are two main things. And there's other things I could, I could talk about, which led to a personal exploration of trying to figure out what the fuck is going on, uh, which led to this uh, white paper. So what fuels your willingness to curate the STOA in such a balanced way? So the STOA, for those of you who don't know, it's this platform, this digital campfire where a lot of different people uh, come in and, and give their give their talks and share their ideas and you curate it in a very balanced way we could say where you give people with very different types of ideologies of ideas of points of view uh equal space and you bring them all together in this way you create the space for them so why i don't know why the, the big why but uh one part of the i guess the long game uh is seeing like being an observer of the culture for so long um, and seeing how broken the, the discourse and dialogue is, no one's really dialoguing with each other. They're just trying to gaslight each other with memes. Um, 
and but like kind of what I like about the all these different political tribes, mimetic tribes, is that they do have a piece of the puzzle. They do have the piece of truth, and it's almost like hyper focused on one aspect of it. Um, and I love engaging. This I have a novelty bias, so I love engaging with these kind of like um, different perspectives, and especially if it's difficult conversations. But you just can't do that uh, in the in the public sphere, uh, even in a lot of kind of private conversations. It just turns into uh, nonsense and bullshit. So part of the long game with the Stoa is to get a lot of mimetic diversity, uh, get them warm. These these kind of chieftains or these these um, people who represent these perspectives, get them warm by the digital campfire and then eventually get them into conversation with each other. So phase one right now is getting that mimetic diversity at the STOA and, and phase two is coming online um, slowly but surely that we're getting people in, in dialogue with each other. And, and the STOA at least has a reputation amongst this kind of meta space as the place to be like the, the, the nexus of where all these kind of like people are, are crossing paths. Very cool. I, I want to ask you another question on that, which is, you know, there's there's a lot of people um, whom we could call part of a metaculture. Some people call them like the metocracy. Just there is indeed an audience um, that is attracted, like you said, to the store. Um, what do you think is their most useful trait or the most beneficial or interesting characteristic that all of these different people share? Because I think that that is perhaps... Uh, the most interesting thing about the store is that you're curating a space where this trait, this particular trait of all of these different kinds of people comes to the forefront. Some people call it the meta gene. I don't know. Do you have any view on that? So, you know, there, there's uh, a couple, I guess, movements or scenes like meta modernism. That was one game B uh, post rationalists. Uh, and they all have different philosophical lineages and trajectories, but they're all like, they revive in similar ways. Um, and then maybe the through line between the three of them and then the other ones that you mentioned is sort of um, a willingness to have dialogue and difficult conversations and not uh, collapsing in the face of complexity, especially narrative complexity. Um, and then there's, there's some kind of like... Um, pretense and bullshit in the scene, obviously, but uh, I find the people who are drawn to it uh, come with a sense of aporia and, and, and admitting that they don't know the answer, they don't know the truth, and they want to get into dialogue to figure it out. Um, and they're, they're not getting into dialogue just to kind of like shove their memes, you know, down your throat type of thing. I think there's something quite like explorative and feels mostly genuine about the people who I've like encountered speaking on the Stoa and engaging with the Stoa audience. Like I haven't seen much of a trying to force people into particular boxes. There is obviously like a, um, a strong bias towards what seems to be like well-educated middle-class people from English speaking countries. And probably, um, it, it remains a very intellectual space. And I mean, like, why wouldn't it be? It's people talking about philosophy and ideas and religion. But that also perhaps begins to form, like, who I think some of its blind spots. Like, I'm, I'm very, like, mindful of one of the critiques that, um, that our friend Alexander Bod makes a lot about the, like, lack of 
engagement with say conversations around sexuality or psychoanalysis in and around much of the stoa and perhaps this like broader sense making community and then i'm mindful at the same time that kind of saying this i'm probably coming from within my own somewhat allegiance to this mimetic tribe that might be called like people who exist in and around the philosophy of alexander bard i don't know if there's necessarily a name for it but i do find interesting there's this like sometimes called intellectual deep web forum there's this like name being floated around dark renaissance although it's not really taken off it's not really like become anything too um serious so like i wonder like what, what do you have any thoughts on on what's going on here in your kind of like the dark renaissance type yeah scene? Yeah, yeah like what does that look like yeah so I, I don't know if you know this but i created the intellectual um deep web with bard you uh, did indeed yeah i know that and yeah. then you're not really active on it no, I'm, not, I'm not active on it uh, self kind of interesting yeah and i know bard you know we hung out when when i was in london and whatnot um he's a wild man and uh there seems to, i haven't yeah it doesn't feel like a like a a mimetic tribe yet or that's i wouldn't like coin that in the dark renaissance thing it's more seems like in the conceptual realm mm. that's like an umbrella term to describing a group of uh kind of like live intellectual live players who might have a reactionary bent that's that's my kind of like sense of the vibe um towards the you know the whole prevalent woke blue church type thing um and highly intellectual and and, and philosophical uh in the in the in the orientation uh i quite like it uh and i engage with it um but yeah beyond that I'm, i think you two are more plugged into that scene and, and might have more to say uh, so I'm curious um, to flip it back to you. Uh, what's your sense on the dark renaissance? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think what I enjoy about at least existing within it is this, um, the fact, like you said, it's it's got some serious like intellectual heavyweights there and there's quite a um, a solid intergenerational thing to it. It's also quite small, but there's a few kind of like, older figures like Bard and Andrew Sweeney and like Thomas Hamelrick, who I've been getting more friendly with recently who are like fucking smart guys who I admire a lot and who are like willing and able to kind of like they're reachable. And I feel like I have kind of personal relationships with these guys. And I think there's a connection here between this, this deep web or this dark Renaissance perhaps to the European men's movement, which is kind of another mimetic tribe, if you will, but, it's very non-intellectual and that's also part of what like um what draws me to it is like i find myself hanging around more and more in this manifesto space and i'm part of this kind of like online group manifesto core which it's a little bit like rebel wisdom in the way that they've built their like rebel wisdom in a circle where you've got a, a subscription fee and then you go to well i don't know exactly how it looks but it's that kind of thing um and it's based on like there is a personal development bent to it and like a, a shadow work bent to it. But like I said, it's not particularly oriented towards sense-making or intellectual stuff so much as towards relationship forming with other men. And I find that to be actually incredibly beneficial to me precisely because I tend to exist in intellectual space most of the time up in my head and trying to do like serious, perhaps um, like study and analysis and it's great to actually just be around guys who don't do that at all. Like uh, perhaps at a slightly like more 
zoomed out theoretical way of describing this. I think one of the big um, issues in culture and that kind of plays out along the blue church dynamic, right, is that, and this is quite a body in point as well, the priesthood who once upon a time existed to have the like dual roles of theology and of pastoring, of looking after those in the church. Once we moved into blue church and academia, the priesthood kind of abandoned pastoring. And I think that to a large extent accounts for the mess we have with people say like existential, like self-worth and mental health, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a real interesting kind of like point is how do you bring the pastor back to the priest, if you will. And I see that as being something that's beginning to happen in and around this, this European men's movement and this manifesto frame. There's like very smart intellectual guys, but engaging in a way that isn't just purely intellectual Whereas when I've seen um, more of the, say, like sense-making or meta space, I know there is, there's an element on, um, you know, there is community and there is personal development. There is shadow work, but it always to me still feels like very kind of middle-class and intellectual. Any, uh, any thoughts, Daniel, on that? Uh, I can jump in with a few things. No, go ahead. Yeah, like, on one hand, there's my critique on, say, say the constellation of uh, the tribes I mentioned that kind of would track to the meta, uh, like the meta-modern, game B, uh, post-rationalist, to be most uncharitable, uh, it's disembodied and masturbatory. Um, so that, that would be my critique on it. You can unpack what that means. Um, I have a Stoic background, as I mentioned, I, I, I uh, uh, organize a Stoic group in Toronto, and that's sort of like the, that's sort of my operating system, I would say, uh, philosophically. Uh, and then that's a very, like a, a very different kind of intellectual tribe that exists that doesn't really interact much with that meta space. They, have, they don't even, are not even aware of each other, I would say. Um, and then that has sort of a, um, an interesting, a lot of people in academic philosophy, they dunk on stoicism for being like, you know, one-on-one um, -on -one type stuff, but it, stoicism is quite good because it's at the intersection of the practical, uh, you know, it actuates you in the world. Um, and it has that like, kind of that, the gritty masculine uh, essence as well. So that's sort of where I'm coming from with this. And the, the men's movement is, is interesting because, you know, rebel wisdom, they have a men's retreat. And uh, I was, I actually did their, last January, I did a, their workshop and it's quite good. And it's influenced by the Osho strand. Um, and a lot of these other men's group, that's like the mythopoetic Robert Bly beat drums in the woods type thing. Um, and I just have like a, um, a bias against that stuff. Like I have a judgmental valiance towards it. And I haven't really got a sense of like the Bardian men's group in Europe. And I don't know how it distinguishes between like kind of the Osho rebel wasn't tough. And then kind of like the Robert Bly, uh, King warrior, lover, magician, you know, like the union stuff. So I'm very uh, curious to, to kind of get a sense of it. Yeah. It's, um, that's a good question. And it's, again, it's difficult for me to completely compare it to those. Cause I don't know rebel wisdom's approach or the, the Robert Bly's approach that well. Um, I think, what can I say about this? So I exist within manifesto and I, I'm like, 
I think they do focus too much to an extent on like discovering purpose and vision. It's, I'd say like, it's very intellectually influenced by, um, by Jordan Peterson and David Deida. And so Peterson's big thing is on vision, I guess, self-authoring. And David Deida is like, one of his core points is that men need purpose and an attractive man is a man who is a man who has purpose and a man who doesn't have purpose isn't attractive. Now, I think there's a degree, this stuff can also be used as an, as an avoidance strategy. Daniel sent me an, a, uh, an amazing YouTube video um, a few weeks ago about Actually, it's like a Jungian psychologist talking about different types of men with mummy issues. And one of the, uh, the responses to mummy, well, there's two common responses. One is a hyper-emotionality, a kind of like hyper-hysterical man. But the other pole is a um, like super-emotionally detached man, a guy who's really into like personal development and goal settings as a way of just like not having to engage with his emotional life at all as a way to, if I can just change my limiting beliefs, if I can like do a bit of cognitive surgery on myself, I'm going to, um, (laughs) I'll overcome my difficulties. Right. And I think there is a strong bias in a lot of men's work towards this sort of orientation. But what I think is perhaps interesting within the, um, within the manifesto frame, there is like a, at least an awareness of the value of psychoanalysis, as I kind of mentioned. And there's also a, perhaps a, a deep respect for, for religious tradition and like religion as practiced traditionally, as opposed to uh, the conversations around religion that I perhaps see more in the meta space, which is this kind of like religion without a religion. Like how can we learn the, learn what religion does and kind of bootstrap a religion 2.0 that can do religion without necessarily having the same symbols and the same dogma. Whereas what I like in, in this, in this space, in the, in the manifesto space is religion is almost met and accepted and valued on its own terms. Although there is also perhaps a, a new theoretical way to thinking religion, which comes out of the work of Girard and Bard, which is kind of about Bard begins his book, Synthism, with this like statement, like everything is religion. Religion is simply what binds people together. It's the whatever kind of set of practices and symbols we use to, um, we use to hold, <laughs> hold ourselves and our societies together. And I like that. I like that way of thinking. And I also like, I like thinking of religions as art forms, as like great big collective art forms a bit like heavy metal is an art form. Well, Christianity or Buddhism is an art form. And I think these art forms are constantly evolving, but they're also very beautiful and wonderful to meet, like I said, on their own terms. And so I, I've been rambling a bit, but I think what I do really value in this space, like I said, there's that appreciation of the religious on its own terms rather than filtering it through perhaps a a rational framework too much. Yeah. Like um, trying to justify it uh, through that Mm. rationalist lens. Uh, And I vibe with that. I'm, I'm, I was baptized as Orthodox Christian. Um, 
and uh, I wouldn't say I'm a um, devout practitioner of it, but it is my spiritual home. I feel most uh, grounded there. Um, and I do engage in the Jesus prayer now and again. Uh, and if I were to be, I, I feel like I'm philosophically and religiously up for grabs. So if, if I were uh, to be captured, it'd probably be by Orthodox Christianity. Um, but I, I do like the framing that you did as a work of art and it's, we should take it on its own terms. Mm. Um, so, Owen mentioned something in there that I've heard you, Peter, mention as well sometimes, which was the connection between left-wing and right-wing preferences with daddy and mommy issues, respectively. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if, if what you guys uh, think of that. Uh, I wrote that in one of my journals. Uh it was about Jordan Peterson and how Jordan Peterson kind of adopted the archetype of the father. And he came around and was criticizing the social justice warriors in such a way that it didn't really have a loving kind of redemptive vibe to it. It had this like really, um, I felt a resentment in his tone. And so imagine if someone daddy comes along and says, you're basically an idiot, then, you know, that's going to trigger you. Um, so it's, it's more of the archetype that he embodied uh, that made him controversial. That was at least the kind of the claim. Uh, yeah. And I do think uh, there is something there uh, how left-wing types have uh, daddy issues and right-wing types have mommy issues. Um, and going back to the, the masculine piece, a really good book uh, and it's coming to mind, you know, Neil, Neil Strauss, the pickup artist guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, have you read the truth? His second um so so good uh so the first one the game was about his exploration and 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 pickup artistry which i was extensively at least in the community i was never a pickup artist but i kind of read all their shit and had a lot of friends in that that area um and then in the second book uh the truth uh he was trying to get over his addiction to kind of sex and women and all that type of stuff and then he got into therapy and uh one of the things like you know the young's idea of the all-consuming mother Mm -hmm. uh, and like the narcissistic mother. And then he was at a pickup artist conference and he, and he asked pickup artists, like how many uh, people here had narcissistic mothers? And he described what it was and everyone put up their hand, you know? So it's like kind of a pickup artistry is a way to gain agency in the face of like kind of that fear of the, the, the feminine. Um, and that scene from that, that I think it was in 1960s, 1970s Casa, Casanova, movie came online and at the end of it uh he was like dancing with a life-size doll and his mother was watching from the balcony <laughs> you know so it's like if you take the pickup artistry stuff to its logical conclusion you're creating a, a woman as a life-size doll so to speak but it, it allows you to gain some kind of control and agency um so yeah i don't i don't know exactly where i'm going with that but i i sense that there is something there as a response to um the fear of the feminine coming from a lot of the reactionary side and to the um the leftist side as well. Hundred mm. percent, and and it's interesting because these are the roots, or according to people like Wilhelm Reich, at least, who speaks about the mass psychology of fascism being rooted in this homoerotic relationship with the father, something like that. And uh, in his case, it was very much a left-wing point, but it feels like these are the roots of the larger climatological shifts in the newsphere. Just randomly, today I was watching this video from Simon Sinek, and he's speaking about millennials in the workplace. And you know, 
Simon Sinek's type of stuff. It's it's the type of stuff that corporate types can watch without too much guilt or looking over their shoulders. Um, but he made a point about parenting and parenting styles and the leniency and all that. And certainly, do you think there's a relationship between, I guess, parenting and the moral development of people of our generation and the political movements that we're seeing in the newest sphere also accelerated by the internet? Uh, I, maybe this is a big question, but I think this also relates to sort of a late stage empire um, syndrome. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think? Um, <laughs> um, nothing's coming for me. Mm. No, oh, I, get, I was just, I think it's a fascinating point, right? Like I do think, I think I really resonate with that sense that um, probably people on the right, if they're going to have a parent issue, it would be a mommy issue. And that thing, that framing you made about people on the left having a daddy issue that makes sense as well. Like Jordan Peterson falling into this position of stern father and it like massively upsets the left. And a lot of guys on the right are like, yes, because I think the response, particularly of men, I don't really know the feminine psychology, but I know the response of men to mummy issues. And I know this from myself. It's like completely personal and autobiographical is a desire for power like a real desire for like this like personal agency and to really resonate with voices and people who seem to like promise personal agency and autonomy, probably because there's something inherent in the relationship towards a, um, like a, a pathological mother that involves a boundary being inappropriately transgressed as a child or inappropriately broken there's some kind of issue with a personal boundary, like a very, like the, perhaps, perhaps like the, the, the boundary between mum and baby or mum and child is kind of like first order and the boundary between father and baby is second order perhaps. And so for the person who has the mummy issue, there's this transgression of the first order boundary, which leads to like a real, um, I, I think, desire for that, like ultimately personal safety, which then gets expressed through a desire for control and stability and self-optimization and self-maximization. Like I see a lot of this in and around the men's movement that I'm part of. And I think it's an element that we have to be careful of and be critical of. I also think at the same time, like it's incredibly valuable being involved with this men's work because it does, there, there do seem to be so many men either suffering from like, perhaps like mummy issues or some kind of greater disillusionment with culture at large. And it is men that if they are not, if something isn't done about them, they're going to go and fucking blow shit up. They're going to do dangerous, destructive shit. It's them who's going to go and get us into like hard right politics. And so where, where I almost see my own interest, it's like engaging with this perhaps political right, slightly reactionary world in a way that tries to prevent it from getting drawn too deep into its own shadow side. Um, and it's, what was the initial question we were asking about? Like, again, well, so about this, these parent dynamics within political, maybe I'll put a full stop there and start sling it over to you guys and see if you can riff on anything that I've just said there. Yeah. Like, um, <clears throat> so I'll say when, things get too much in the propositional for me. I feel I become disembodied. 
um, and, and I, I try to bring it to my life. You know, uh, that's sort of how I operate these days. And so I'm curious to bring this conversation to our lives and ask you guys this question. And we can edit this part out if it gets too edgy. But uh, do you have mommy issues or daddy issues, politically speaking? I think you know the answer to that. <laughs> oh, I've got political mommy issues. <clears throat> yeah, I think same here. Uh, my point of view of this is that it has to do with, um, and I think this, you know, society is infantilized, point one. Um, and point two, both uh, daddy and mommy issues, in this case, parental issues, have to do with um, the attainment of separation from the identity of the parent. So there's two ways that people can perhaps formulate their identity. One is through the eyes of the parent, what will the dad or the mom think of what one is doing? Or what will I think according to my purpose, my identity, my taste, etc. That's why Freud or Jung said, <clears throat> think about Alexander the Great, the ultimate mommy issues. He had to conquer the whole of Asia to get away from his mom, to find himself. And even then, we don't know if that played out. I think in, in the movie, they speak about that a lot. <clears throat> uh, so it's ultimately a journey of separation and individuation. So it's kind of the place where you start. And then with a the big enough moral effort, separation might happen. And obviously separation, individuation, maturation, all things that, um, that everyone has to go through. And it's kind of a never ending task, different intensities, but that, that would be what I think. What's, what's your um, point of view of that? Because, and, and maybe we can, we can, add, okay, let me know if I'm getting too personal, but like, I don't I feel know. like you ran away from the personal aspect a little bit there, man. I didn't want to call you out on it, but <laughs> you kind of sidestepped it. Okay. Well, yeah, mommy issues, clearly. Um, so I guess. And I'm, I'm curious, I, I can kind of tell you my uh, mommy issue, daddy issue, because I think I have a little bit of both. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to kind of um, see how that manifests. But I'm curious how, it, how it's coming out for both of you. Mm-hmm. I know Owen is, you know, you're, it seems like you're, actively wrestling it with, with the men's group and you're seeing other people wrestling it with it probably in a, a less examined way that you are doing because uh, they're not plugged into this kind of like, you know, heady space. So yeah, I'm curious how it's unfolding in both of your, your life. So I think like I've kind of it already. Like I think I, I was really I pulled towards Jordan Peterson and the whole intellectual dark web movement that arose because it seemed like cognitive and had a bias towards facts over feelings and also towards this like especially the peterson message of (laughs) get your shit together right and then you can achieve whatever you want to and like i for a long time loved that story like i think i've had a lot of unworked through anger and sadness around having had a pretty aggressive abusive mother and a way of getting away from the the anger and the sadness is to get really deep into purpose and and creation it's it's that old like thing in the union thing of avoiding the emotions by by having some kind of agency age and 
I think it it then biases me against political speech that is like oriented towards other people's suffering. There's a sense of like, I think my attitude towards suffering is almost we all suffer. Like not there's like something wants to say, get over it. But I think the, the, we all suffer, get over it. Like I don't really resonate with that stance, but it's like, we all suffer, embrace your suffering and then make what you can in spite of it. And and I have a bias against, again, political speech and political ideas that aim to enforce a reduction in other people's suffering via using power against the people who, who create the suffering. If you sense it. So in fact, that opens up another door to it. I think I have real strong authority issues so what I don't like is being told what to think or even the sense of like, there's a way that you have to act. Politics is going to shape your life and tell you how you engage with other people. Even if say they are less fortunate than I am, there's more of a sense of like, well, why can't we just be left alone to be equals in our own space? Which I think gives me a bias against a lot of modern leftism. Although re- really where I feel like I kind of exist is a bit of a like <laughs> reactionary anarchist perhaps in that like I am not a particularly big fan either of capitalism or of what came before capitalism. I think we can do a massive reorganization and deinstitutionalization and decentralization of society. But I think traditional religion has an important role to play within that. Yeah, what's coming up for me, um, a couple of things, this might be a little incoherent, but um, so I used to do this uh, really intense debate club in Toronto. It was like this underground secret society and uh, it was really innovative, uh, um, the modality. I, I remember distinctly, there was one guy that was like a new atheist, kind of like total new atheist meme plex, and another person was like a traditional Catholic. He was an SSPX, the total track cast. And they almost like just, it's like the same coin with different sides of it. Like the new atheist, he was afraid of authority being unfairly imposed on him. And the Tradcad was afraid of a society that didn't have authority. So he was afraid of the, the, the chaos. Um, and then, but they, everything else is, is the same movement. Mm-hmm. And seeing the different, and then that fight club just really like the, the really revealed uh, sort of the shadow or the psychological schema behind the person's attraction to their philosophy. And so like this having a felt sense. And when I look at the culture war and I see these sort of um, philosophies in the wild emerge, I feel almost the shadow work that needs to go on there. And, and, and to me, that's where the, um, the gold is. That's where the juice is. Um, so that's one thing that came up when, when you were talking, Owen, and uh, just to put my, uh, my trajectory with the mommy daddy issue thing. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, like I used to have daddy issues, I would say. I had both mommy issues and daddy issues. And I think when I was in my formative years as a teenager, the daddy issues were more prevalent. And I was like into anarchism and left politics and stuff like that in university. And then 
when I started working, I was working at the University of Toronto in the division at one point of human resources. So think about this, you're Canada, you're in Toronto, you're the university and you're an HR department. That's like the nidus of, of social justice right there. And then, then Jordan Peterson, you know, I found him as my therapist. So that I was like, um, <laughs> you know, like then the reactionary sort of like the mommy issue started coming up because it's just like, I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. And so then I had that reactionary vibe. Uh, but at this point, I, I don't feel like I have, I'm pretty integrated with both. Um, and I don't feel like I have either. And what afford, which, which affords me to engage with people from different political spectrum that might have both. And so, yeah, that, that's sort of my trajectory. And the other thing that was, uh, I think that's related to that is sort of game and how having good game or bad game like leads you to engage in the culture or in politics. Because, uh, you know, I remember the Hartiste, one of the leading guys in the manosphere, he was saying, um, yeah, a lot of these incels just need to learn game, you know, uh, or, or that kind of that uh, heuristic. Don't trust a man who cannot get laid. And if you have bad game, how, does, how, do, how do you show up in the culture? How do you show up at the culture war if you don't have that confidence with women? And of course, I'm talking about from the perspective of a heterosexual man. So those are the, I don't know how coherent was that, what that was, but those are the three thoughts that emerged, which yeah. I'll toss out there. Yeah, what comes to mind very quickly is that um, as, as one, mm, you know, the degree of separation or overcoming, which is never complete, or it might be, but but the degree of overcoming of these issues do show the level at which the person is able to formulate and produce thinking, right? Um, you mentioned, and maybe I'm making a caricature, but you mentioned that when you were younger, you were more leftist, more anarchist, um, and it has to had to do with, with a certain view of, of authority. Might it be that those who are the most um, pro a communist, socialist government that takes care of everything might it be that those have mommy issues as well or you know it doesn't map clearly to me uh where they fit but certainly what does come to the forefront as something that is that we can say surely is that uh you, the ability the trustworthiness of someone who you can sense the trustworthiness of someone who's done their work and you can sense the lack of trustworthiness of someone who's perhaps, I don't know. Do you have a, a sense for, for that in people, a certain social tact? Because I feel you do. Is he talking about inner work or social work? Like, like interper interpersonal work? Like yeah, yeah. You know, Peterson said that SJW, SJW dudes are weasels. And this yeah, is correct, yeah. but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And just to circle back on, on something before I get to that. Um, yeah, like, of course, the mommy daddy issue thing is, is, is a crude thing, and it might be wrong. Uh, and it's partly a personal experience, because I felt like the daddy issues were salient when I was engaging in leftist politics. And then the mommy issues were salient when I was engaging in more reactionary uh, intellectual dark web stuff. Um, and I do have a sensitivity, it feels like that is a trend that's happening in, in the culture war. And totally, uh, like the sneaky fucker mating strategy to, to talk about what you just mentioned. Um, I noticed a lot of people, you know, people who have the friend zoning mating strategy, like people who perhaps are on the leftist politics, they have uh, um, their game is uh, kind of like, let's, let's be buddies, let's be friends. And then uh, let's hopefully not be creepy enough to get, you know, rejected 
but like, you know, that strategy where maybe a more reactionary conservative one is just more direct game, stuff like that. Um, that seems to track with my experience. Again, interesting that you mentioned mating strategies, uh, pulling, pulling the sex into it as well. We're involved in game. I think, I don't know about you, Owen, but, uh, but I did read a lot of that stuff as well. Um, it's so remarkable how it circles back. How there's there's these overlaps and, and roots and different levels at the scale, you know, that you have the guys who are interested in game, who are probably also like right wing, who probably got the mummy issues, who probably have some other position in the mimetic tribes. Um, just fascinating. So many parameters that overlap. But I sense that out of these flows, out of these different parameters and categories, there must be some... There's, there's leverage. There's, there's perhaps. I mean, it, it is super interesting how like sex is one of the core levels and game as like one of our internet age responses to sex. Like me, totally. I remember back in end of 2016, I think I decided that I wanted to start hooking up with women. So I started watching game videos on YouTube and then found myself onto the red pill on Reddit and hang out on the red pill for about a month until someone posted a Jordan Peterson video there. And then I saw that and that was how I like got into Jordan Peterson. And it was, was when he'd just done his first Joe Rogan. And after listening to Peterson for about a month or so, I was like, fuck red pill. Like these guys are just kind of like resentful losers. Mm. Themselves. I think red pill is basically red pill is destination one for a lot of guys who had a horrible breakup and it really hurt them. And then they come and seek, like, how do I get power? How do I prevent this from happening again? And they meet a bunch of guys who say, well, look, the truth is this is always going to happen because all women are like that. But here are some tips that you can have so that you're not going to get burned so badly next time. And everyone's like, okay, this sounds kind of good. Like work on myself, go to the gym, eat healthy, have clear goals, be slightly more detached. Don't put all your eggs in one basket with women. But it ultimately has a very... um, it has a very reductionist view on the actual sexual landscape. It's like, ultimately it's evolutionary psychology and women just either want a man who's an alpha and got a big dick or who is an alpha in terms of money and status who can pay for a lot of stuff. And guys get trapped within this frame of thinking and ultimately still remain very much within this sense of, I do the stuff that I do so that I can pick up women. I go to the gym, I do purposes right. Right. so i so i can pick up women but then there is a bit of a perhaps a transcendence out of that like what happened to me when i discovered say jordan peterson who's adjacent intellectual intellectual to that space but then i feel like perhaps to generalize like if if you could say the sexual dynamic playing out particularly perhaps in the contemporary right would be one of people trying to people who got hurt, trying to rediscover sexual polarity. So trying to rediscover what it means to be a man and rediscover how to treat a woman like a woman and treat women like women. Whereas the left seems to be more in this sense of let's be less engaged with the realities of sexual difference. Like men and women aren't that different. And the differences have led to unjust oppression and unjust power dynamics. So the more it's kind of, I sense, and maybe, maybe you disagree with me, but I think there's a bit more of an androgyny on the left, but not necessarily like a, um, 
a sexy fluid androgyny as more of a, a bit of a like gray where men and women are both a bit more just kind of gray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like <laughs> I remember, uh, uh, I want to, I want to touch on that, but I'll, I'll tell you the first very first session uh, with Jordan Peterson, like uh, for some reason, pickup artistry came up uh, and he's like, I'm not going to do his voice, but he's like, they're social pass. <laughs> he just kind of like, you know, just brushed them away, but he was obviously uh, well read in them. Um, uh, and then I introduced him to a lot of things. And then I kind of changed his opinion, I think of it, because I thought that was um, somewhat uncharitable while understandable. Uh, because if you take the pickup artistry to its logical conclusion, like a pickup artist, like mystery, he basically gives us like this fallacy, like we're, we're designed to fuck many women. So therefore we must fuck many women, <laughs> like period. Um, and then all these, you know, what I would call dead players, you just adopt scripts. Like, okay, this is what the pickup artists are supposed to do. They're supposed to just approach women and have sex with them in clubs. Um, like, no. Uh, but that being said, some of the tactics and techniques do work. Um, so my journey in that whole, whole scene, like I did these challenges that actually Peterson talked about in, in some of his videos where we approached in the men's group that I was in at the time was that I experimented with these men's groups as well. We approached 100 women in one day and, and asked for their phone number. Um, and like, I got rejected a lot and that, that, uh, I think rejected like 73 times uh, with, with my hundred approach challenge. But after a challenge like that, it's like, I'm immune to rejection. You know, and then there's like, I, I'm not afraid of getting rejected by a beautiful woman anymore type of thing. Um, so that's great. It felt like a superpower. It gives you optionality. And so I think if you engage in the logical conclusion of pickup artistry, it does lead to becoming a sociopath and to having like an extreme I it sort of way of relating with people to use Martin Buber's language. But you can exact the purposes. You can exact that the, some of the skill stack that's gained from it and use it for something else. Um, it, like, uh, like Frank Yang, that guy, he was in pickup artistry. And then I think if you have kind of the understanding, the intimacy of how to be attractive person towards the opposite sex, it allows you to be seductive and persuasive and quote unquote, steal the culture type thing. Um, so I think it's quite good. And I do think there is, and feel free to push back on this, but there is sort of almost universal aspects of, um, attraction for like heterosexual men uh both physical like height and stuff like that and also personality traits like confidence and as, as peterson says it's not the man who has the gold that's attractive it's the man who can get the gold um so i do think that's good and it's good to cultivate that type of stuff um but there's a limit towards it and my recent engagement with some of this more nebulous like leftist stuff has been quite fruitful to me, especially this idea of like non-binary and, and stuff like that. And the poly community, cause I'm, I'm a monogamous. I've been, you know, married for, I don't know how long I've been with my wife for like 13, 14 years um, just with her. Uh, and, but engaging in some of the poly literature and having the people in the space, is quite interesting because they have all these terms like new relationship energy. I don't know if you know, you know what that is. Like when, when, when you meet a woman and this like, uh, or a man or whatever partner, then this like energy comes online. That's like a, a new entity. Uh, and then with like normie monogamous, when they experience that, then like notebook fantasies come online, like, Oh, she's the one or this or that. But then the people in the poly community, they experience this all the time. And, and they have a more sophisticated uh, relationship with this energy. And when I've, I've had, when I've, while married, I've had encounters with other women and then that energy came online and I was unprepared for it. I thought like, oh my God, is this, is this woman the one? 
But then having a more sophisticated relationship is not like a binary option when you when you face with these desires. And it could be the lust desire, like, you know, if you're, if you're turned on by a woman, it's like, time to fuck. Maybe not. You know, maybe it's something else that you can transmute this energy. So I, I really like uh, some of the, the material that's in this more leftist community because it gives you optionality to deal with these states that some of the more reactionary right-wing tribes is just more of a binary approach. How does this rea uh, connect to your concept uh, of the cultural war front between institutionalized knowledge and stigmatized knowledge? Because I sense that, you know, from, from your post on Substack, the stigmatized knowledge part was more related to these rogue grassroots conspiracy theory adjacent or, or proper type of, in, of knowledge versus, you know, the academia, the proper vetted gate kept science and all of that type of, of knowledge. And, you know, this experiential knowledge of which you've just been speaking about or the knowledge gained through pickup artistry or even through these groups that one is engaging with cannot be said to be proper institutional knowledge but it's not really at the point where it's stigmatized either because it's not really UFOs built the pyramids and QAnon. So how does this, does it fall into this dichotomy, this kind of broad topic that we're talking about? I don't know. Um, so what you're referring to is this uh, uh, four part series I did on my Substack about cultural battlefronts. And then the first one was woke versus anti-woke battlefront, which is basically what we've been talking about now. That's, that's kind of like the main one that's been there for a while. And another battlefront is uh, sort of what I would call institutional knowledge, like what Jordan Hall's Blue Church versus what uh, um, Michael, was his Barkham, uh, he's a conspiracy theory uh, political scientist, calls um, uh, stigmatized knowledge, which is like conspiracy theories, woo, alchemy, all this crazy stuff. Um, and I think that is a divide because a lot of people who have this like knee jerk reaction against institutional blue church are just like swimming in all sorts of stuff. It's like QAnoners or into like all this crazy conspiracy or like spiritual stuff. Um, and it's, it's kind of interesting because that stigmatized knowledge, it seems like an intersection where a lot of people on the left and the right are meeting. Um, so it's like one of those kind of like intersections between the woke, anti-woke, uh, stigmatized knowledge versus institutional knowledge battlefront. It's like they, they meet. And so it's like, odd alliances are forming there I'm, I'm finding um but yeah it's it's a lot of gray areas there but um i'm curious if you have any thoughts on that it just feels that like there's a lot of areas up for grabs still uh there's two there's two like someone at once uh, we were in the intellectual dark web and there was a thread about metal and someone said that in metal you are either declaredly leftist or you will automatically be placed in the extreme right-wing category. And that's just one of the examples, you know, the new age stuff that a, couple, a few years ago was just new age stuff gets politicized after a bit. It was like the polarization is a trend that is so pervasive that it is now sort of colonizing all of these territories of culture that was, were previously just gray and normal. Uh, incels and, and game guys and... Uh, Pickup artists. I've read articles calling them right wing or proto right wing or, or, or incipient, you know? So certainly it does feel like, because this also relates to me with the concept with Foucault's idea of knowledge power. The one who defines the regime of truth used to be obviously the academias and the governments and all that. And they decide to get to say what is truth and what isn't. Whereas what we're seeing right now also because of the internet 
is new ideas about truth, right? New little cults and mimetic tribes within which people have different truths. So I guess I'm, I'm coming back to the, same, to the same idea, which is that the ability to establish something as knowledge, to inscribe it within a discourse and to situate it is power. Um, I guess that that's the simplest vector that I can simplify it for. I don't know what you guys think. I think this stigmatized knowledge is like a, um, yeah, it's a fascinating front. Like I hadn't really considered it or framed it this way until just now, but yeah, like, <laughs> and perhaps it's even what brings a lot of people together, say in and around the Stoa, in and around these, like what we're exploring with ontological design, this idea of like how stigmatized, non-normative, non-acceptable in traditional academia ways of knowing and being can be used to open up new ways of existing. Because I think like within our communities, there is a general sense of dissatisfaction with, with what goes on out there and a desire to discover <laughs> new ways and to play, to play an experiment. Right. And it's in these, in these, in these like discourses and, fields of knowledge and being that haven't been rigidly inscribed within the categories that we think like as already exist. So like, what does it mean to be someone who's really into um, psychedelics or Tantra? We don't exactly know. Although some of these, I think I listened to a podcast recently, a very leftist podcast, and they were reacting with horror that there are people now they called them like Jordan Peterson fanboys who were getting into psychedelics. There was this like sense that like, that's our shit, you know, like that we can't have people on the reactionary right getting into psychedelics because this is what we use to, to do our stuff. I guess this is our, in our sense, our, our transcendent, our, our like our, our, I don't know exactly what it is. Territory, right? Yeah. So cool. And then, and then it comes to like esoteric, psychedelically charged Nazism, which is like a swastika with a rainbow behind it. Um, but that said, I just wanted to throw something before, before I, I wanted to pass to you, Peter, which is, so we've been talking about how you know, these energies, these psychosexual rooted energies in society um, coalesce and form political views and form movements, right? Um, so like, one of the things that someone said was when you have a big mass of, you know, dudes who can't get laid and who are kind of purposeless in life um, and who've got probably a few issues which have contributed to them being kind of in a rut in life, then you get a communist party or maybe a Jordan Peterson or whoever that can rile this base up and use that latent energy and energy that wants to separate, individuate, and kind of harness that for one's own political purposes. And it feels like there's definitely a lot of that. It's just that there's a lot of confusion, but you know, there's a lot of will and a lot of energy that has yet to be formulated and harnessed in this way. It is like there's a latent tomorrow in today's repression. Yeah, I feel it too. Um, and it feels like a, a dangerous opportunity, that energy. Um, and I'm reminded, uh, I was reading a lot when the Arab Spring came online. Uh, I was reading a lot about that. And like, I think, uh, I forget what country, but like 80% of the people were unemployed men. 
they're, they call them wall sitters because they're just hanging around the wall or whatever. And then, you know, that was the argument of why that happened. And when you have men that are, you know, not getting sex because the Pareto principle is like totally happening in the sexual marketplace right now and the employment is not well and all that type of stuff. Um, yeah, it's like uh, that energy is there and people are going to capitalize on it. And, and, and it's almost like this, like uh, the internet is providing an interesting opportunity for that to occur, for these people to come around and try to, you know, harvest this energy. Um, this is why I'm interested in virtue, but we can kind of maybe bookmark that. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I had some other stuff that slipped my mind, but I'm curious what's alive for, for you, Owen. Yeah. Um, I love that you mentioned virtue because what made me, th I, what I thought immediately there was like, well, religious frameworks of what help men contain themselves precisely around ide having ideals and conducts of behavior. And when, like over the last 200 years, what we've lapsed into is a very utilitarian way of moral decision-making. Ultimately, being virtuous is a sucker's game. The best thing to be is to be shrewd and manipulative and work your way to the top. At least that's kind of like what our, um, our systems of prestige, systems of business, of, of politics, etc., have optimized for. And so I think there's without perhaps mentors and role models for guys, you can actually say like, this is what it means to live a virtuous life. This is what it means to live an honorable life as opposed to this is how you can go and pick up whichever women you want. This is how you can get your dream job, get your dream wealth, etc. It leaves that space, what we might call the like dark side or the shadow side of the male open to someone who does promise something more than that or who can promise everything they want and more. Here's the thing that, that you may relate with, which is you're absolutely right in the characterization that the current age is one where it is, you know, the only thing exchanged is like, like I used to say, coal and dead things. There's no real virtue or something birthed from an act of, of inspiration and, and something like that. It is rather something where shrewdness and, and manipulation are rewarded. And the whole economy is kind of based on that. And it's achieved an optimum where it can function like that in a sustained fall uh, for a long time because these systems are supposed to fall. When a small village is just based on lies, everyone lies, they all die. But currently, we've kind of expanded that, that life cycle artificially, maybe through technology, maybe through um, really violently extorting uh, resources from the planet. Call me messianic. But, uh, you know, I've always been of the opinion that real pathos, real virtue uh, is like a headshot and it can, it's like day and night, it can appear and kind of upend by contrast and burn away all the deadwood, right? Uh, not saying that it doesn't hurt, but this is actually, Peterson mentioned this and, and you know, with every movement that has even a little bit of traction socially, there has to be at least a little bit in its core that is virtuous, right? That is a little bit true and alive and not necessarily just a pyramid scheme. Does that, does that make sense to you, Peter? Oh, I'm curious uh, a few things. Like the headshot uh, thing was, was, was uh, stood up for me. Can you describe more what you mean by that? Good idea can save the world. 
uh, you know, the right idea. Heidegger speaks about the midnight hour when the oppression is so large, I'm butchering the quote, that w where the oppression by technology is so large that by contrast, the salvation power will also be at its highest. Um, that's what I mean by headshot, right? Messian messianism. It's, it's very much this idea that a mind shift is possible. It's like Gandalf arriving and it's all in white. Um, how does that resound to, sound to you, especially with the, with the point you made about virtue? And I know, I know you, this is, you're at least a little bit spiritual and there's something in you that you like to feel and tap into and intuit, which is something very, very cool that maybe we could talk about. Yeah. Well, one thing like the, yeah, I, I like the headshot metaphor, um, but there's also a sense that like, you know, virtue is hard. <laughs> it's not something that happens overnight. It's like, you need a gym, you need like a wisdom gym in order for it to develop. Um, and there's so much uh, incentives in our world right now for us to be not virtuous. Um, and a lot of people lack motivation, like a meaning crisis, last man syndrome going on. And how can we overcome that? But I do think if more people become virtuous, then we have a shot at transforming things and transmuting things. But my sense that it has to be uh, done in private or in a way that is um, unexpected. What's your sense of the word epiphany? I don't know. Uh, why do you ask? So first, it's, it's, I think it's part of the lore of the Orthodox Church. And secondly, it's a flash revelation. An experience so massive that it has, that provides the energy for, for the reorganization of one's whole life. Um, mm. Yeah, like I, I blab a lot about uh, the daemon or the daimon in, in my writing. Um, and, uh, you know, to speak about it in a, um, a secular sense, it's like a certain quality of intuition that points you in a certain direction. It says, go here. And if you listen to it, something delicious happens, an adventure happens, but there's no guarantee. Um, and I actually think it's, it's, it's a good psychological move to view it as a separate entity uh, because it untethers it from ego, uh, this, this, this kind of, this essence. Uh, so not a daemon, the daemon. I, th I think it's quite good. And um, every time I was engaged in these creative pursuits that led to a real like, like fruit really in my life, uh, I followed this energy. And then when I started like trying to control or have this egoic machinations or fear came online, it was like I broke up with the daemon. Um, and then I have those flashes of insights that you described when that comes, energy comes online and it flows through me. Um, and then the stoa just came in in a vision. And then when, when COVID came online and then the daemon was there and it's still riding with it or it's flowing through me or channeling through me now. Um, and then you can be like less pretentious and woo, just like a certain, listen to a certain uh, intuition rather than viewing it through system two thinking, um, navigating my life, I should say. But yeah, and my thing is that if you follow the daemon or the daemon, it leads you to demons. It leads you to kind of like, it forces you to get character upgrades. And um, I got untethered from consciousness. I was like losing my shit and had a lot of visions uh, um, around March, May that just came like an epiphany um, for me. 
So, yeah, I do think there's something there. And I don't know how it really relates to my uh, uh, spiritual lineage of Orthodox Christianity. But um, on a, I experienced shit like that. And I think it's real. Yeah, that's brilliant. Like, t- tell us a little bit more like, about the relationship that you have with this entity. Why is it separate? Have you consciously made it separate? Um, is it a choice, a practical choice? Uh, or do you have any, like, do you not have any control over it? Um, well, it's like, you know, when I, when I wasn't aware of it, it was just sort of like intuition following it. Like it felt good, whatever. Uh, and it got kind of like, I conflated it when I was younger with like hedonism, with this kind of energy that didn't really have a, a sophisticated, uh, intrapersonal intelligence to kind of tease the two out. And, um, and then kind of like knowing about Socrates, followed his daemon, his daemon, and reading some of the literature. So some terms started emerging. Uh, and, and really it was that eat, pray, love woman. She had a TED Talks <laughs> about the daemon. And then uh, and she talked about like how uh, artists uh, stopped um, viewing it as a separate entity. And then that's when they started like, you know, going to drugs and like kind of like burning out and all that type of stuff because their ego stock got so fused with the creative process, but having it separated allowed sort of that kind of, um, if the day, if you don't have a creative moment, it's okay. You know, cause the daemon has not visiting you type of thing. So it was like kind of like a good psychological tactic to, um, not get destroyed by your art. Um, so yeah. Uh, and I do a lot of kind of somatic intra subjective work, that allows me to feel into this felt sense of these contours. So I can kind of feel when it comes online, when it's not there and type of stuff. So it's like another language is being spoken and learned um, that I'm using this word, uh, the daemon, the daemon. What kind of somatic work? Uh, It could be, you know, breath work to circling, to uh, collective presencing, all these intersubjective practices where you're engaging in, um, kind of the subtle realm, the, the emotional realities with other people and then mapping words to it. Uh, and journaling helps a lot as well uh, with this, to kind of like teasing out different kind of um, energies. It's amazing because that's precisely the, or, or one of the best uh, explanations of what magic is in this modern post Alistair Crowley type way um, in that it's kind of an animism of the self where you just put your finger in the air and try to feel the wind and somehow meaning gets made through you. It's not one, it's not you who makes it. You're the conduit for it. As we design our meaning, it designs us in return. So there's also kind of this project situation happening with this dama. Uh, it's kind of like a statue that you also give something to. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's odd because it doesn't work in um coherent linear fashion it's like in dreams sometimes ideas get overlapped and time changes and different people happen at the same time so it's very diffuse at least in my experience but somehow it keeps yielding it keeps pointing yeah yeah i like that um and like you know eudaimonia the the with the they translate to happiness the modernist like i hold that as being in good relationship with the the daemon um, being in right relationship with it, uh, eudaimonia. And when you're kind of like, at least how I hold it, when you, when this thing is channeling through you, um, it's like the good, true and beautiful, right? It's like, and if you, if you're truthful 
with it, then you're forced to be virtuous with it. And then if it's leading you to this kind of crazy places, then your virtue is uh, comes online. And my working hypothesis is the more virtuous you are, the more beautiful your world becomes and the more you can help be of service to making the world a more beautiful place. But just to add to that, um, I wholly agree. And sometimes beauty requires holy violence. What do I mean by this? That's oftentimes when I hear and speak about virtue and all that, I tend to forget. And it's good to remember that even, you know, the originator of our moral was Jesus in this sense. He was crucified because he committed a crime because he went to this temple and he started to like kick people and turn over tables and shit. Um, So in a sense, to be a guardian of such good, beautiful and true requires that we actively um, pursue conflict sometimes or, or not, not pursue, but like don't shy away from it. Uh, and, and such other things that might be considered distasteful or unvirtuous according to other lenses. Do you know what I mean? Does this make sense? Mm. Uh, I, I have some thoughts bubbling up, but I'm, I'm curious what's pinging with Owen with that. Mm. So relating to what Daniel was just, just the last point, there's, I definitely think conflict and virtue are not opposed. And any system of virtue that says avoid conflict at all costs, I think, is not a system of virtue. I think virtue, as I understand it, is much more about how you conduct yourself and how you approach the conflicts, like how you do go into conflicts that need to be gone into, but without fetishizing any aspect of the conflict, like either your opponent's weakness or your own strength, your own victory or your own loss i think there's almost there's something in perhaps like virtue and like maybe this is a stoic way of framing it is it's like a kind of somewhat detachment from it it's like doing the right thing because it's the right thing but not doing it because you're in love with the image of being the person who did the right thing you don't identify with it yeah and i think well this is that kind of reminds me, I want to back up a little bit because I remember when Peter, we started talking about the demon or the daemon and about like this non-identification of it, of keeping your ego separate from it. And it was interesting. I love that way of framing. And I also, I know that this conversation emerged out of this conversation of virtue. And to me, I feel like inspiration or daemon and virtue are distinct although they interwork with each other like i think virtue is a personal practice i think it's a mistake to attribute one's own inspiration to one's own virtues i think that is another tunnel down into kind of megalomania essentially it's i i'm capable of this stuff because i'm such a great person and i'm almost while I think I love inspiration, I love being inspired. Techno social wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for me sitting in the garden and just having this voice that was like start a podcast. And it was just like fucking out. Like, okay, I'll do that. I don't know where that's come from, but I'm going to do that. But I don't know if it's wise to live life in search of these experiences or to make these experiences or the sign for these experiences, the core of an ethical worldview especially perhaps not for 
not for 99% of people who are just trying to live an ordinary life. Like, but, Cause I think it maps quite well onto what I see in, um, in a lot of perhaps a new age scene, which I would say like perhaps transcendentalism, which is this desire to attain through meditation and spiritual practice, that ultimate bliss state, state and ultimate liberation and ultimate enlightenment where you're like freed from the everyday shit and the trappings of normal mortal existence. And you experience one consciousness with God and blah, 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 blah. You know what I'm talking about. And I'm mindful at the moment. I'm increasingly thinking of like how this, this experience or this desire for, this this like transcendental drive or this like this desire to have a transcendental practice how that shows up in all sorts of different ways and i think a way it can show up is in a desire to be constantly having moments of like intense inspiration moments where you no longer feel like owen or daniel or peter but feel like the daemon it's it's its own it's its own like trapping and i think really the the ethical question, and this comes to me because I've been spending a lot of time like studying and increasingly getting closer like, to practicing Tantra. And Tantra is very much like abandoning your desire for this bliss and this ecstasy and these wonderful states and like actually experiencing your transcendent practices, learn the art of living an ordinary life. And I think the art of living an ordinary life is, is perhaps the thing that increasingly I'm drawn towards within a context like i live i do not live an ordinary life fucking bizarre things constantly happen to me (laughs) but that kind of produces a desire in me i think i'm like how can i just like fucking live and hopefully afford to pay my bills and eat and not drive myself mental which (laughs) is a hard time half the time yeah um i think that's well well put uh and the way i hold it uh, and there's some stoic bias here is um, like you can be eudaimonic being a right relationship with the daemon or you can be dystemonic. I think that's what some psychologists call it. You can be in wrong relationship with the daemon. I think part of being in wrong relationship with it is fusing with it and pretending like being narcissistic about your access to it. Um, and that's why I've, this is my stoic bias is that virtue is sort of like a different talent stack that keeps the daemon in check and, and, you know, keeps you eudaimonic. Um, and it's, uh, um, what's it called? Uh, what was the thought that was coming up there? Um, yeah, it's like it's almost like the, the daemon or the, the being visited by it, this quality of intuition is a given. It's like a given of life. And, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying I'm an expert at this for everyone, but maybe some people just don't have access to it. Maybe it visits other people more intensely than some people. Um, so some people are required to step up their virtue game in order to be in right relationship with it, assuming if my theory is true. Um, so yeah, I think that's an element there too. But uh, I, I almost view this sort of this energy that comes to certain people as this sort of a given. And then it's like, okay, what the fuck do I do with it? Do I become narcissistic with it? Do I become like, you know, uh, create all this crazy art, but then destroy my life and my health and all this type of stuff? Or do I try to have some semblance of virtue in the face of this kind of like creative uh, hurricane that is channeling through me? Um, and because sometimes it's not wise to listen to this energy that tells you to go there. Sometimes it might be wiser, more prudent to do the opposite. Because uh, the muse is also sometimes a dragon. The image that comes to mind is the madman on his high tower and uh, the villain laughing maniacally in the middle of a thunderstorm, right? What's the thunderstorm? It's the electricity of the energy of the daemon. Um, 
So the muse is also a dragon in that sense that um, if you're virtuous, then it's, it's a muse. If you're not virtuous, then it becomes kind of a, kind of a dragon because there is a proper way to be in relationship to it. Proper being the key word is like, there's a proper way to plant potatoes too. Like, you know what I mean? There's a proper way to make a glove. Uh, and there is an anatomy to, to, uh, to this um, diamond entity type thing. And I, I agree that, you know, you know, identifying with it seems slightly weird. Young said that about Hitler, that he's so thoroughly identified with the diamond that he, you know, he had nothing of his own. He was kind of this empty eyed, slightly feminine, like very pale type guy. And then he went to the, to speak in public and he was possessed, right? Um, so, so Young said that Hitler was uh, possessed by the diamond or something like akin? Yeah. yeah, I think something huh. where he was looking at um, Mussolini and Hitler walking by and he was live watching them both. And he was like, yeah, Mussolini, he is what you see. He's like a big guy, he speaks loud, he's kind of a bully. But then Hitler is a, is a medium, mediunic, in that he is completely void of, of, of personality and become a vessel. What's a vessel? Mm. Like the, yeah, the vessel for the collective unconscious of like the shadow of Germany. Volta. The 40 years of its like cultural supremacy followed by its defeat in in the world war one yeah and so like he he became that unconscious force entirely and it was like a distinctly german flavor to it that's also uh, yeah, yeah. That, um sorry go, go. yeah it was, it was uh, that wotan uh, article that young wrote about uh the hitler and Nazi germany was pretty dope um, but just to, to quickly circle back to the um, conflict thing and tie it in with the whole daemon stuff and the virtue is, uh, you know, one of the stoic practices is journaling to oneself. And, and it's sort of like in the purpose of that is to keep one truthful, uh, keep one honest, uh, to put one at the edge of their thinking, to call them out on their bullshit. And I try to do that at a daily basis. But you need other, like, you know how Aristotle calls friendships of virtue. you got friendship of utility, friendship of pleasure, the friendship of virtue. Someone who's dedicated to see the best in you for its own sake and to keep you accountable and call you out on your shit. Um, and there needs to be practice. And there's no institutions that, there's institutions that promote utility, friendship of utility, friendship of pleasure, obviously, but there's nothing really promotes uh, friendships of virtue. And you need other people, men or women, to just kind of hold their truth on you and call you out on your shit because you can deceive yourself. So, uh, so easily that, that was sort of the, the, the debate club, the essence of it was like, like, imagine this, it was, this is how we designed it. It's like one hat, man had his eyes closed and he was in the, the agape seat, if you will. Uh, and then the other, and all, he only could do two things, uh, say what he believed to be true. And he had to answer at least one question posed to him and you couldn't interrupt. Uh, so there's three things. And then everyone else could do whatever they wanted. They could yell at him. They could like challenge him, all this type of shit. Uh, both on a, like a psychological level and on a propositional level, and it fucking kicked my ass philosophically. You know, it just like I came in with a lot of intellectual arrogance, and it destroyed me. Uh, my map of reality just got like, you know, set on fire, and I had a lot of uh, existential crises with that. But it was great uh, because it allowed me to speak a language beyond reason, to put reason in its place in a way. Um, and so you need shit like that. You need kind of like innovative psychotechnology. Um, that allows other people to keep you like in check, but in the spirit of virtue, not in the like, spirit of narcissism or gaslighting that's happening in the broadcast media and the culture war. So I, I definitely, I, like, I don't think anyone has, has figured this out, 
but I definitely think this kind of like gamified conflict uh, is needed in order to maintain uh, maintain one's virtue. Hmm. That's why throughout the ages, you can see the same, because man doesn't change, technology is the variable. And so throughout the ages, you do notice this. Uh, it's so, so marvelous. It's the same thing all the time. The Egyptians, they had chess, and the Greeks, they also had, you know, the Stoa and the forums, and the, every civilization kind of has their own way or their own emergent ways to tackle this problem right yeah 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 and it's like a um a meta pattern exists if you will uh and it's just like we have to figure out artistically how to like express it with the, the you know the the ruins of our age or whatever it may be um and then kind of so it makes it attractive and, and for people to want to engage with that's half of it and I would say that maybe the other half of it is chaos itself will show us what has to happen in a certain time when it's needed, right? The, the right, right. circumstance invents the hero. Uh, I'm thinking about Peterson, and I think Bart was talking about how Peterson uh, came to the forefront in such a time, and he was uh, propelled to his, his status as, as, as a known figure because of the circumstances, of the, the, the culture war. And also because there might have been weight put on him that was the weight of, of um, identifying with this, with this egregore that everyone was so keen to, so, needed, so, so in need of, right? Um, some people called him messianic because there were some people in his audience who were like seeing in him kind of a savior figure. And this just ties back to what I was pointing towards, which is the mimetic environment, certain quality of the newosphere at every given moment will produce what it has to produce in any given moment. If there's clouds, there's going to be thunder. If there's no clouds, there will be sun and there will be other things rising, right? So there are patterns, perhaps too large and too chaotic for us to be able to map, but they exist. The best we can do perhaps is intuit them with animism, but, but they do exist. I think. Yeah, I vibe with that. Interesting. One of the things that I do sense with, with the current climate is that there are perhaps so many, I'm, I'm very cynical in my own nature in many ways. I, I, I have a hard time to have a novelty bias, but I also get over stuff quickly and have a commitment issues. So, which stem from mommy issues. So out of, you know, I cannot push myself to love something and to get, to, to introduce a new habit into my lifestyle because I want to. I can't like, you know, oh, new psychotechnology. I'm going to do this every day now. It's, it doesn't work like that. It has to really be the thing. And then it, I, it will be carried out of its, uh, based on, on the love for the idea. I don't know if that speaks to my own um, like a will or not, but so it seems, yeah, so it seems like by ontological design, that kind of strange attractor has captured you. That's true. And it's, a, it's an attractor about building, attra building roads to attractors, which is the weird thing about it, right? It's, it's, it's self-referential. It's designing how to design. And this, this book, um, Daily Habits, I think it's called Daily Habits comes to mind. Uh, the, the author tracked all the daily habits of great artists throughout history. Um, 
and before I read that book, I just assumed artists were just like these crazy kind of inspired people, but the really good ones, the ones that made an impact, they were so fucking disciplined and regimented in their schedule. They woke up at the same time every day. They did this, they went swimming, then they wrote for three hours and that was it. Um, and I'm finding with this kind of like, I view the stoa as an artwork, I view it as a life work, it's, it's an artistic expression of me, this whole kind of thing. Um, and there is just sort of like this chaotic kind of like free flowing vibe there. Cause I don't never know when inspiration is going to get, you know, come. But when I have like 300 emails in my inbox unanswered, the daemon's not there. <laughs> it's like, I have to like figure out a habit to get that shit cleared. And then all the inspiration emerges. Um, so my sense is in order to like, like a decent artist between a great artist is, is to have that kind of that virtuous discipline in order to uh, allow that energy to channel through you in a clean way. It requires a good cause, though. You can't, you can't say, uh, you know, it requires a good cause. And then the cause energizes you to do that. Because if you didn't love the diamond, you wouldn't be checking 300 emails for any other um, thing that, didn't, that, that you weren't so passionate about, right? Yeah, there's this thing like, uh, you know, I like the diamond, but I don't want to, I don't like his admit work. <laughs> you know, like, you have to really kind of be inspired by it in order to do the administrative shit uh, involved in it. I love it. That said, question, uh, are you going to kill it? I heard. Um, so I did uh, this thing, like, so this one year anniversary of the Stoa is on March 21st. Um, so that's like, like in a month, right? Uh, and yeah, there's a couple options. I might end it. Um, I might just keep going, but only three month intervals. So every three months, there's another, maybe the end of the Stoa party. I might take a break. I don't know. Like I want to keep going because there's so much excitement and buzz around it, but I like the artistic idea. Like it's a sand mandala, you know, those, 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 those are mandalas made out of sand and you just rush it away after you brush it away when it's created something beautiful. I like that. And then just having that kind of the optionality to get out. And so I'm not too uh, psychologically attached to the project or the kind of like the, the financial fruits that are emerging from it, from the Patreon or from whatever the gifts uh, allows me to have the daemon in the game still. So that's one of like another psychological ploy I'm, I'm doing just to kind of like keep, keep me active. So I actually don't know what I'm going to do on March 21st. There's a little bit of anxiety, like pressure, like I got to do something. It has to be fucking interesting because that below all this hype around the end of the party. Um, so there's things going on there, but having that move is helping me uh, continue. This is super interesting in the context of what you guys were just talking about, which is this like creativity and then discipline and putting, putting a frame around it. Right. And it's something that I, I'm very mindful of in myself and that I confront a lot in the men's work I'm doing in Manifesto, which as I've kind of already mentioned, there's a lot of focus on structure and discipline and goal setting and purpose and et cetera, and et cetera. And that stuff is valuable, but I also have like a deep personal allergy to it. It's like really difficult for me to go through this process of like goal setting and even more difficult for me to actually like <laughs> really like convince myself that i'm really going to work towards goals and difficult even with things like scheduling i try to leave scheduling to a bare minimum because i just i love the spontaneity and i love the open-endedness and i do find so many of the great creative ideas flashes of inspiration come to me precisely because i haven't restricted myself and so there's this constant battle between discipline and constriction and having a plan and having like clear tactical moves to make within a defined time frame and not having that 
and being yeah. open to the to the inroad of experience and like what i think i'm seeing like what at least i think i pick up from doing the men's work i think there is a spectrum of people who are oriented some are oriented to, to kind of archetypically some are oriented more towards chaos and some are oriented towards more towards order and perhaps some of the people who are kind of chaos oriented need some order imposed on them but also will never be able to do order in the way that some people who are really ordered can just do it and really get off on it and really enjoy it and like struggle if they don't have it. Right. right. Yeah. A couple of things are coming up there is, um, cause like, okay, okay. Virtue, right. How the Stoics hold virtue, the cardinal virtues, same thing with the Christians, uh, prudence, uh, courage, temperance, justice, and the mother of all virtues, the other ones that spring from it, the other three is prudence, practical reason. And I'm a man of reason. Um, and I, and I, my sense is if you, if you are a man of reason, then you don't just adopt things. Like you don't like, well, the pickup artist tell me to do this and just follow the scripts. Oh, this like some self-help person tells me to be disciplined this way and you follow the scripts. No, if you reason, you're reasoning, okay, how am I going to be dis- uh, disciplined in this, this way? Um, and I have like three heuristics about how I reason is one. It has to be uh, wild uh, in the sense. I don't know where the fuck it's going to lead me. If I reason well, it has to be embodied. It has to influence my body somehow either to like, act, like, you know, go to the polling booth or just like eat what food uh, it has to be modest, you know, it has to put reason, reason has to put reason on this place so I can listen to the other kind of energies. Um, and when I do that, I find like bespoke solutions emerge and I'm allowed to think creatively, uh, reason creatively. Um, and so going to the discipline thing, I think one can be disciplined in a kind of like complex ontology. Uh, so Dave Snowden's Kinevin framework comes to mind. Like there's a simple ontology where you just follow instructions. There's a complicated ontology where you have to be an expert at thing. Then there's a, uh, a chaotic one where you just have to move, follow impulse. And then there's a, comp- a complex ontology. And a complex ontology, there's certain ways to navigate with it. And intuition is really important in this. Uh, and he has a technique called safe-to-fail probes. So it's like a bounded experiment, bounded by a time or a completion or some kind of like forcing function. Uh, that allows you to test things, feel the ripples, and then do the next experiment. Uh, and you can be disciplined in that boundary. Um, that's basically the stoa. You know, there's no long-term commitment there, and each thing is a safe-to-fail probe, ripples out, um, and then do the next thing. And this, this sort of, this is a framework, this is a disciplined framework, but this allows the day one, at least right now in my life, to kind of like channel through me. Safe-to-fail probe, you said. Uh, safe to fail probe or face safe to fail experiment. I think it goes by either or. This is, you get this done, and there's only this much to worry about. And you do it a lot of times, and within it, like you can be free as fuck. You can talk to anyone, but like this is what you do, <clears throat> kind of a rule of thumb. Uh, and then from that, because that gives you a certain level of a grid, it gives some structure that isn't yeah. too rigid to the point that, oh my God, I can't handle this, but it's free enough to the point of uh, it's even, it even helps creativity. It doesn't hinder it. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're living in such, we're living in complex times, chaotic time, like almost chaotic times. And we need to think in these times well. Um, and so we can't like have like dead scripts from a bygone era, like from these self-help books that tell you how to set goals. Like how do you fucking set a long-term goal now? It's like, like, like that's ridiculous. Um, but you want to like set a short-term goal that will get you to the next goal. 
uh, and then that'll get you the next goal. Um, and then it's almost like you have to follow a different wisdom with that. Going back to the day one, you got to listen to something else rather than kind of like engineer a future that's perfect and ameliorates all your anxieties and all that shit. Uh, it's similar to Bart talks about protopia. You know, you just want to make something a little bit better yeah. rather than perfect. Uh, that resonates with, with one thing that, that kind of um, really made an impact on me, which is uh, I was reading this, this apocryphal gospel of Thomas and somewhere in there, Christ says that once you make the inner like the outer, then you'll be in the kingdom or something to that effect. And what does that mean, right? Once you can do something outside in your daily life that is somehow connected with a little feeding tube of energy to the eternal void within from which the voice of the daemon speaks, if you want to be a little bit metaphorical, then, then, then you're good because then you have renewable energy forever as opposed to kind of relying on the fossil fuels of immediate gratification and, and, and exchanging and manipulation and all these tick tricks that, that, is, that, that are poverty, right? They're just sheer poverty. People who grab onto the, the, the very little inspiration that they may have had narcissistically or whatever, that's poverty of the soul, really. Um, and wealth of the soul is, is kind of, you know, you're comp- you do your job, you, you put it out there and you do its bidding. You don't, you don't have too much of a say. And in that sense, it's really cool that you're, you still don't know what you're going to do on the 21st. Good. And that's good. I, I, I mean, I think it's a cool thing because it's like, you want to keep the demon alive as well. And, and it is doing some of the guiding for you. Uh, and that's, I think, such an amazing piece of the puzzle. Right, right. Yeah, it's sort of like um, it's an interplay between my capacity to reason about things and then listen to that energy. Um, and then just kind of like the art of finding the right balance uh, and then becoming more skillful there, which I'm learning. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of the kind of the stoic like, you know, the, the lived heuristics of stoicism, like amor fate, love thy fate. When this anxiety comes online that, that I don't know what to do with the stoic, it's not tremendous anxiety, it's a little bit. Like, oh, shit. I'm not in right relationship with anxiety right now. It's an opportunity to love my fate. Um, do my negative visualizations. This is a stoic, you know, heuristic. Is just like, what's the worst case scenario? Uh, I look like an idiot. This, that. Lose my money from the Patreon thing. Okay. And if you're cool with that, then it's like it frees you up. So, yeah, the perennial wisdom shit. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's boring to talk about. Like, I don't like talking about stoicism. Like, it's like Epictetus, don't talk about your philosophy, but embody it. But it's, it's there, right? It's, it's like you were saying. It's like, it's, it's that meta pattern. Fucking cool, man. I just took note of that because, you know, and I don't do this often, but it certainly does feel like when you do negative visualizations, you're free of expectation. Uh, when you love, you know, it's like that guy, uh, that, that, that really buff guy who goes to Rogan uh, and he wakes up at 5 a.m. every morning. Oh, Jocko, the, the Navy SEAL guy? Yeah, and he, he's got yeah. this video online with a metal song in the background. And it's kind of this crude manifestation of it, but he's like, you got fired from your job? Good. Good. Yeah, that's the more, yeah, that, the more fate. Yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's like inspiring in, in this proper sense of the word where it, it inspires, it brings a breath of pneuma, of spirit, of diamond from, from within. Yeah, yeah. And it's, that's, it's kind of cool because, like, I view my world as my monastery in a way if you have these sort of simple heuristics that you can rely on because it's like I'm, I'm going to always practice. There's always an opportunity to say good for an uncomfortable or pleasant state that arises. They're small, right? They're, they're, they, they 
it can fit on the little bag of the Fool of the Terror. They're not too, the heuristics, right? They're not massive books. I know where I have so much wealth that it weighs me down. No, it's like the whole world, I just do these five things. Um, that's wisdom. I think this is what is, I found beautiful in like learning the philosophy of Tantra as well. This idea of just really opening and embracing whatever shit gets thrown at you and finding ways to transmute what might be negative emotions into more constructive things. So it's like there's a um, anger brings up a real directness. So being really angry can also lead to just like, right, I'm going to do this. Sadness, grief leads to deep empathy. An ability to stand with other people in whatever they're going through. And I guess fear i've been thinking about a bunch of what does fear or anxiety do and as far as like i think there's an element of gratitude emerges from fear because if like there's fear then there's something to be lost right right yeah like um i i kind of geek out about psychotherapies too like there's over there's over like 300 different psychotherapeutic modalities <laughs> i think i've engaged in with all of them and um what they call third wave cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy was influenced by stoicism. Like they have a direct kind of influence because um, it's all about focusing on what's in your control and third wave CBT, they call it uh, acceptance. Uh, was it commitment therapy? And they have something called cognitive diffusion. Uh, it just basically fu- uh, diffusing uh, your thoughts and your emotions. Um, and that's, if you follow the stoic algorithm by like living through these lived heuristics that eventually happens and then when that happens then you can kind of like turn your reasoning eye towards the emotional reality and then you have optionality. Okay. Let's treat like how I view it. I treat an emotional state as a friend giving me advice, but a lot of times friends don't always give me the best advice, but they're well-meaning even if it's like a painful emotion. Uh, and so then I can get in relationship with this state and get its wisdom. And it's always surprising. It's never obvious. It's never this kind of like script that society like, Oh, well, like anger, do go here, you know, like sadness, do this. Um, and if you get into right relationship, I find with these different states, then you can process things and, and you can sense make better. And you also can get along with other people better uh, from various different tribal constellations, like going full circle back to the culture war. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think my engagement with a lot of this type of stuff um, helps me kind of navigate culture war dynamics so far. And it's, it's increasing. It's so cool because it's not, like you said, it's not something that even remotely looks like um, what would be prescribed to you by society. Or even if it does, it's just by accident because it's something that is very bespoke to yourself and the circumstance and your own. And it's also your own, which is something very, there's something very sweet about that. And in, in, in that it's kind of the gift of life. It's like, you know, you're alive. We're given to feel these things. That's, that's, that's all right. You know, that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. And you can kind of sniff when someone's living that way. It's like, there's a certain je ne sais quoi about them. I find it's just like, there's fucking original. Um, and, uh, and I feel like they live with the spirit of just sort of like bespokely uh, designing their life. And this is going back to ontological design too, right? this is why I'm interested in this uh, concept. I think so. I think that, I mean, that's, ultimately where it boils down to. To me, ontological design is kind of a circling around one idea. A professor of mine used to say that there are two kinds of thinkers, the ones that have many ideas and the ones that have one. I think I'm one of the second type because I just have one idea. I just take it for a walk everywhere and it yields results all over the place. And then I can pack them up and then it's, it's, it's a thing. 
And why is it just one thing? Because it's energetic. It's a little energetic dynamo of uh, recursiveness as you design, so it designs you in return. And in a sense, it is also alive. It is also a daemon in a way. Who knows? Yeah, um, perhaps uh, we should wrap up. But uh, my closing thoughts, and this would be a good like session at the STOA or maybe another inquiry, is... Uh, you know how John Verbeke has the three P's of knowing or th like there's like propositional knowledge of the truth. There's procedural knowledge, like how to do something. And then there's participatory knowledge, like that ability to get into the flow state and like having that kind of sophistication of being skilled. And then there's uh, what's the last one, uh, perspectival knowledge, like kind of like the experiential state of it. Um, like I'm, I'm curious to filter ontological design through each of those levels like okay, let's get the base propositions understand the truth of, of this field but okay how do we actually do it like the different procedural level and then what's it like being skilled at it and like the flow state at it um i'm very curious to like explore that hey, you know what you just described there's a there's a chapter in my book that i haven't write, written yet there's a little page which is uh, uh, i, I want to take ontological design through the lens of uh, heidegger's uh so heidegger he spoke about this ancient idea of the greeks which are the four properties of materials or four causes of technology or causes of the material that is the cause that is the worker the, for example the carpenter doing a, a table there's the causa materialis which is like the material of the table the wood and there's two others and now i'm kind of completely forgetting them but i feel like they completely they, they at least match a little bit with what you were saying uh in that the process to make a technology and the process to learn something, i.e. to make a human, they are, uh, they, they, they're the same flow that just twists around here and there like a, like a movie strip, but they're the same thing. So cool. Let's totally do that. I want to ask you a final question, um, Peter. Uh, are you uh, LARPing as Marcus Aurelius? Like right now? Uh, I thought I was like LARPing as Alexander Dugan. Uh, you know, I guess I'm looking Dugan-esque these days with his beard. Um, but yeah, if I were to LARP someone, it would definitely be... Uh, uh, I actually look like Zeno. If you could type in Zeno, like the founder of Stoicism, it's yeah. like he has the same beard, the same faces. It's kind of creepy. I gotta, I gotta have like a more of a different haircut, but it, it tracks. I don't know. I think you look more like Marcus Aurelius, to be honest. All right, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I'll Peter take Lindbergh's it. meditation, the sacred <laughs> died in 2000 years. Right, right. Or Peter Lindbergh's Substack. Yeah. This has been a great conversation, guys. I'm fucking exhausted. Like, I feel like I've been drawn into a very, um, a space that's like very open and very in my body. I think it's been like quite vulnerable at points as well, talking about like mommy issues and daddy issues and political stuff. But I think it's, it's good to like bring that I think into the the podcast space rather than just being super intellectual the whole time, which is where we spent to hang out a lot of the time. <laughs>